Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here in charge of our preaching team. If this is your first time with us, we are delighted to have you here. Why is it that Christmas time can be the most wonderful time of the year for some people and the season of most acute depression for others? Some people enjoy family, friendship, and holiday cheer, while others grow cynical from experiencing loneliness and loss. In 1946, jazz singer Nat King Cole recorded one of the most famous and sentimental Christmas songs in American history. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe helped to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. But only seven years later, Mr. Cole would change his tune, singing a completely different perspective on Christmas, one that I imagine will not pop up anymore on your Christmas playlist. He's the little boy that Santa Claus forgot. And goodness knows he didn't want a lot. He sent a note to Santa for some soldiers and a drum It broke his little heart when he found Santa hadn't come. In the street, he envies all those lucky boys, then wanders home to last year's broken toys. I'm so sorry for that laddie. He hasn't got a daddy. The little boy that Santa Claus forgot. So amid all our sin and misery... How do we keep Christmas from dying? What transforms Ebenezer Scrooge into the most generous man in London? What causes the Grinch's heart to grow three sizes in a day? We'll find the answer this morning in Genesis chapter 3. If you have one of our church Bibles... It's on page two. Pretty easy to find near the front, as long as you can get past the preface material. However cynical you may be about the holidays, the main idea this morning is this. Believe God, and death becomes your pathway to life. Believe God... And death becomes your pathway to life. You can't do this by pretending that everything is awesome. The only way to do this is to, you see in your outline, acknowledge the justice of death first, so that then you can perceive the assurance of life. Let me pray for our time together in God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would please grant us eyes to see the life that you are granting through death. Help us to trust you and believe your word 
and your promises that we might see this Jesus who was born as a child for what he is, the Savior of the world. Help us to love you more this day, we pray. By the power of your spirit, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll now read the story of how sin entered the world. This story will explain both why we need Christmas and how to keep Christmas from dying. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I'll stop there for this morning. Now, I really want to focus on the latter part of what I read this morning, but I read the story from the beginning so we could set the scene. The man and the woman listened to the snake instead of listening to God, and they fall for the lie from the snake that they can take God's place. So they eat the fruit from the tree God commanded them not to eat. Now, that's pretty bad, what happened here. In fact, it's real bad. It's the entire reason why there's so much misery on planet Earth. Right here, this story explains why people die. Why cancer wrecks our lives. Why vermin dig into your house in the winter and make a mess of things. This story explains why God feels at times to be so distant. Why pregnant women sometimes miscarry. Why angry men sometimes think they can get away with abusive behaviors. And this explains why you can't trust many government officials to care more about the people than about themselves. This story explains all of these things. If Adam and his wife had simply made a different choice, everything would have turned out so much differently for the rest of us. But the fact is, there's nothing we can do to go back and change what happened. All we can do is learn to live with it. And that requires us to ask a simple question. Do you believe God or not? Has God spoken truth and can he be trusted or not? That's what they got wrong. And that question is posed for every one of us as well. Can we believe God? Can he be trusted? Because we see in this story some shocking reactions to the brutal facts of sin and misery and judgment. First, I want to talk about how we must acknowledge the justice of death. When God walks into the garden that fateful day, the first reaction of Adam and his wife is in verse 8, where they run away from the presence of Yahweh, their God, and they hide themselves among the foliage. So why do people run and hide? 
Isn't it because they expect something bad to happen? That's, that's why you would run and hide. And why would those who have known God in paradise, why would they expect something bad to happen? Just because God shows up in the garden. Well, verse 10, we find out why. Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So we ought to ask, why would being naked be something to fear? Up till now, they've been naked ever since the day they were created. But the reason is because eating of the fruit that God prohibited, that really did something to them. Verse 7, when they eat, it says, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. That doesn't mean that they were ignorant of nakedness before then. It means that the weight of it sank in. You see, before this, their nakedness was a simple reality of their immaturity and their innocence. It was a picture of such things. And now they see their nakedness in a new light. Their nakedness comes along with shame, guilt, and regret for what they've done. And so they must hide from God. They must hide from God because they know that they deserve to die. See, God had promised them before this in verse 17 of chapter 2 that in the day you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. So now they've done it, and God shows up to check on them, to inspect, and like a child hiding the stolen cookie behind his back, they know the justice of what is coming for them. Now, there's a lot we can learn about how they try to blame each other and try to blame the snake for what transpired. There's lots we can draw out of this, but the story shows us at its heart a couple of sinners who cannot deny their actions, who cannot shake the guilt of their choices, and they are sinners who acknowledge God's justice in the very act of seeking to escape it. The fact that they're trying to escape it is their acknowledgement that it is just. Not only do humans acknowledge God's justice in this story, but God himself also acknowledges the justice of death in the curses he pronounces. Near the end, notice in each case how the punishment that God pronounces, fits the crime for each individual. You see, God had placed humanity to rule over all the creatures of the earth, but this serpent had tried to rise above his station and become the master of the man and the woman, telling them what to do, getting them to join his team. And so when God speaks to the serpent in verse 14, he curses him to be lowered 
onto his belly for the rest of time. And he would eat dust, which is a picture of death. Because the serpent had united with the woman against God, God now breaks up that home team in verse 15 by putting enmity, another word for hostility or conflict, between the serpent and the woman. And their respective offspring will have to fight each other for the future. The punishment fits the crime. And look at what he says to the woman in verse 16. She had tried to be master over her husband, eating of this fruit and taking charge and giving it to him. So the Lord declares in verse 16 that the battle of the sexes is now going to be a thing in human relationships. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And the man had not done the job God had given him of protecting his family and guarding the garden from intruders. So God declares in verse 17 that the ground that he's supposed to rule over will now rebel against him and work against him, producing thorns and thistles. And the one... This man who sought eternal life by becoming his own God, he would now, in verse 19, have to die and turn back into dust. In each case, the punishment fits the crime. God declares a penalty or a punishment that suits the person's choices such that they would have to live with the consequences of their own actions. Well, how does this apply? What does this have to do with us? Friends, the point for us is that we must acknowledge the justice of death. The punishment fits the crime. You see, death is not a byproduct of natural evolution or the survival of the fittest. The reason people die is because we have sinned and rebelled against God. And the reward for such sin is death. God promised it in Genesis 2.17, and he delivers on it in a surprising way in Genesis chapter 3. You see, they didn't suffer the final death that day. What happened was that they triggered the beginning of the process of death. On that day, creation itself began to unwind and work against them. Their bodies ceased functioning in perfect equilibrium and their relationships were indelibly damaged. We still suffer today because of what happened on that day. But it was not arbitrary and it was not undeserved. It was and it remains fully just. Sometimes we think that the misery we suffer is unjust. We deserve better. And from one point of view, I, I will concede and I need to 
clarify that yes, there is a lot of injustice in the world. From racism to classism, from cancel culture to oppressive legislation. Yeah, injustice is a thing. So I'm not saying that there's no such thing as injustice. But here's what I am saying. The very presence of injustice, the fact that injustice is a thing as a part of the human experience, that itself is a just consequence of what we have done to ourselves. Let me illustrate. I once had to fire someone from a job. It was not a pleasant experience. And when I did, that person cried out for justice. They said I was acting unfairly toward them and it wasn't right. So I pulled out a little piece of paper and asked them to read it. On this paper, among other things, it said, if you do X behavior again, you will be fired. I asked whose signature was at the bottom of the page, and the person acknowledged it as their own. I then asked whether they had, in fact, committed that prohibited behavior as I had been told, or did I perhaps have my facts wrong? And they admitted that they had behaved in the prohibited way. So I asked the person again, what was unfair about the firing? And they had no response and went on their way more quietly. Friends, similarly, when we face illness, suffering, misery, injustice, and death, it does us little good to try to accuse God of being unfair or unjust. Please don't get me wrong on this. The Bible gives us much space to lament. Okay, a lament is a protest. That's when you say, God, you said you would do one thing, but it sure looks like you're doing the opposite right now. What gives? Okay, that's lament. And lament is full of faith. And trust, because lament says, I will not abandon you, God. I will not rage at you in fury until you answer me and do what you have promised. So we're actually holding God to his word in lament. Lament relies on God's own words to define reality for us. It does us no good to question God's words or turn away from them. So God said, if you don't obey me, you will die. Humanity disobeyed. So death came as an act of God's justice. This is the crucial first step to keeping Christmas from dying. When you face loneliness and distress this season, you must see it as the hand of God in judging human sin. When you suffer and get ill, you must see the hand of God in judging human sin. When your spirit is troubled over all the little laddies who have no daddies, 
We must see the hand of God in judging human sin. This is not the end of the story. We'll soon see it's only the beginning of the story. And I am not saying, don't hear me saying, that a person's suffering is a direct result always of their own sin. As though everything that goes wrong could have been prevented if only you were more obedient to God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying something on a larger scale. I'm saying that all of our suffering is a direct result of the first sin of humanity. They cracked the door open and they let sin right in to affect the rest of us. And if that seems unfair, why should we suffer for what somebody else did? Think of it like this. Imagine if the president gets us into a war with Russia and your child gets drafted, sent overseas, and is killed in battle. Is it fair for your child to die for something that Mr. Biden did? In one sense, it doesn't feel fair. But in another sense, you know it is fair Because the president represents all Americans and speaks on their behalf. So his actions impact every one of us. That's very much like the relationship between Adam's sin and its consequences for the rest of us. Because of Adam, every one of us deserves to be fatherless. Every one of us deserves to suffer. Every one of us deserves to die. God has declared it to be so. Acknowledge God's justice and you are on the pathway to finding life. And we don't even have to blame Adam because Paul says in Romans 5, we all sin the same way Adam did. Acknowledge that and you're on the pathway to finding life. Believe God and death becomes your pathway to life because Adam's sin and the judgment for his sin is not the end of the story. So we move on to the second point, to perceive the assurance of life. Take a closer look at how Adam responds to the justice of God. In verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, as you read this story, I think it's really, really important to recognize that up until this verse, her name all along, from chapter 2 up to this point, her name has been woman. You may have heard of Adam and Eve these famous Bible characters, but don't let your familiarity with their names and the ring of that, Adam and Eve, don't let that prevent you from following the drama of what happens in this story. She is not named Eve until here in verse 20, after they sin, after God judges them. Why? Why is she named Eve here? Well, remember, in Chapter 2, verse 17, God promised that if they ate this fruit, 
from this tree, they would die. Now they've eaten the fruit and the process of death has begun. It's begun, but it's not yet fully flowered. They haven't fully died yet. They haven't reached the end. And God created the woman in the first place to be the man's partner. That's why she was created, because he couldn't do his work alone. He needs her. Now her partnership will be far more difficult. That's the battle of the sexes in verse 16. But the amazing thing is, she gets to keep her job. She's going to stay his partner. And God created the man to work in the garden. And his work on earth will be far more difficult. Verses 17 and 18. But the amazing thing is, he's not going to die today. He still gets to keep his job. God breathed life into these figures of dust. And their life is now filled with shame and with misery. But the amazing thing is, they still get to live a little while longer. Well, compared to us, a long time longer. He's going to live to be 900 years old, 900 and something. So Adam renames his wife Eve. Eve is the Hebrew word for living. You see, when God threatened them with death and the process of death has now gotten underway, why would Adam turn right around and rename his wife in the midst of all this death, living? That's your name from now on. Well, the verse tells us this. It's because she was the mother of all living. You see, with this new name for his wife, Adam declares his assurance that death is not the end and that their own lives are not yet over. He's claiming with this name that life will continue and it will continue through her and him as well. It takes two, right? This will continue through his own family. Now, why would he ever think such a thing? Well, go back to what God said in verse 15 when he cursed the snake. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You see what God assumes is going to happen? Right there, in the midst of all this death, all this punishment, all this justice, he assumes this woman's going to live long enough to have some children and the snake's going to live long enough to have some children. That's the assumption here. God created her in part so the human race could be fruitful and multiply so that they could have children and fill the earth with them. And her job is now much more difficult. Verse 16, there will be multiplied pain in childbearing. But the good news buried within there is that she still gets to keep her job of childbearing. Death has begun, but she's not fully dead yet. She will live long enough to have children, and those children will live long enough to wage war against the snake's children. All of this is wrapped up in that simple act in verse 20 of renaming woman 
as Eve. Adam is expressing his trust, his belief that what God says is true. Verse 20 is Adam's confession that right in the midst of sin and death, there is life. And in fact, this life will come through death. Because of their sin, God will send a warrior savior through this woman to crush the snake's head once and for all. The end of verse 15. All Adam did was believe that God's word was true. Believe God and death becomes your pathway to life. You see, if you're busy arguing with God about how unfair his justice is, you will never be able to see how he is bringing life and redemption through it. You must first acknowledge the justice of death. The whole reason God became a man on that first Christmas was because of the sin and misery in the world. God himself came and walked among us because we all deserved to die. When we see that, then we can perceive the assurance of life. The baby we celebrate this Christmas season is the Savior of the world, the King of the Jews, the Son of David, and the Almighty God. You see, many people look at nativity scenes, you know, the portrait of a young couple and their baby in a manger. A lot of people look at that and they see comfort and sentimentality. But if you've paid attention to what God has said, you can look at that young family with their child and you perceive that a death must take place. But through that death will come life to the world. Nails, spear will pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. When Mary and Joseph brought their baby to the temple in Jerusalem, most people there saw only another Jewish child in need of circumcision. But one elderly man saw something far more significant. Taking the baby Jesus in his arms, this old man declares in Luke chapter 2, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This man believed the word and the promise of God that salvation was coming through death. Do you? God has promised salvation. He has declared peace. He has shown us his glory. Believe God and death becomes your pathway to life. As we continue through Advent, will you see through your misery and the process of death to discover the life God has brought through Jesus Christ? For many, Christmas time is not a time of joy and glad tidings, but a time of deep suffering. 
It highlights your loneliness or the loss of a loved one or your anxiety. And I want you to know this does not make you a bad Christian. Be assured that the suffering of death is your pathway to life. Jesus is turning your suffering into something beautiful that may lead others to him as well. And if your life is not where you wish it would be, what that means is that the Lord is present in your life and trying to get your attention. You will not find life by eliminating death. You cannot bring an end to your own suffering and pain through medication alone or more money or exercising more. You cannot outrun death. You can only overcome it by dying to yourself to live for Christ. Because through death comes life. Will you keep Christmas from dying by believing that God's word is true? That Jesus is who God says he is? That though we deserve death, God in his mercy allows us to keep our jobs on earth until he brings the glorious future he has promised in Jesus. Believe God and death becomes your pathway to life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, it is challenging to grapple with these large truths of why things are the way they are, how we got into such a mess in our lives and in our world. As we look at this, help us to acknowledge the justice of your judgment on human sin so that even as we suffer particular injustices, we recognize that the presence of injustice is in fact your justice at work. But Lord, strengthen us that we might see the life that you are bringing through it, the hope, the glorious future, the rescue that Jesus came. Help us to see the, the, the living, the, the, the life, the eternal life that you have extended and that Jesus, you have already brought as you are reuniting heaven and earth and you are unraveling the curse bit by bit and remaking the world. Help us to partner with you today and through this season that we might love you and that we would believe what you have said, that Jesus, even though it doesn't feel like it or look like it at times, we trust you are the Savior, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and your kingdom will have no end. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is perhaps the best picture we could have of life coming through death. With this bread and this cup, we picture the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to save his people from their sins and to bring life to the world. In his death, we find life.
Perhaps you've been distracted by the suffering and the death in your life, distracted enough that it's been difficult for you to see through that death to the life that Jesus has offered you. Let's take a moment now to reflect and silently confess to God any places where we have failed to believe his promises of life. Please pray with me. Thank you, Father, for granting us your spirit. Please open our eyes that we might see Jesus as the light of the world. The one who did not come to condemn, but he came to rescue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.